Like I wanted to take a portal fantasy and turn it inside out and talk about power and privilege and escape and who gets to escape and who gets to have adventures. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. The novelist's guide to writing a practical comedium to 10,000 doors with Alex Harrow. I'm Jen. I'm Paul. And today we are here with the previously mentioned Alex E. Harrow. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks you so much for having me. The newly minted Hugo winning Alex E. Harrow, <laughs> to be precise. The newly minted Hugo winning! Yay! So exciting. Literally, I, I hopefully you noticed, but the minute it happened... I literally texted you or on Twitter and was like, oh, my God, Alex. And that was literally it. And I was just so excited for you. Cause... I did know because I was like <laughs> refusing to watch the actual footage of the thing. I was trying to play it real cool with my emotions. So like the Twitter notifications were the way that I found out. I mean, it's one of the best ways to Hugo is through Twitter <laughs> because Twitter is just so happy about the Hugos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so obviously... Alex is the newly minted Hugo Award-winning writer of the short story, A Witch's Guide to Escape, a practical companion of Portal Fantasies, and the reason we are here today, the author of the upcoming novel, The 10,000 Doors of January, which was so good (laughs) that it literally made me burst into tears on the plane home. So... I'm sorry, Slash, you're welcome. (laughs) Exactly. So our very first question is, tell us about the 10,000 Doors of January. Give us the sort of elevator pitch for the book. Okay, it's a hard one to elevator pitch, you know, like, I'm really always jealous of books like Gideon the Ninth, where it's like lesbian necromancers in space. And you're like, all right, sign me up. Um, (laughs) But 10,000 Doors of January is, is about a girl who finds a magic door. That leads to other worlds and sort of adventure ensues. The more complicated version is that it's sort of a subverted portal fantasy where instead of being about kind of exploration and colonial conquest, it's about homegoing and escape. And it involves a book within a book and alternating chapters and finding good friends and having a really bad but very good dog. Is that good enough? Yeah, that sums up the book. I mean, this is this is a very crunchy, complicated book with lots of 
lots of layers and moving parts. So as you said, it is the the high concept is a little bit hard to get around when I first started reading. <laughs> like, what am I getting myself into? Especially when we started getting a book within a book and footnotes. Yeah, I'm asking a lot of readers. It's like <laughs> you trusted me through a couple chapters. Now let's start over. Here's a new book. Also, it has footnotes. It's you know. It's a journey of faith, guys. I feel like you warn us, though, in those first two <laughs> chapters. You know, it's there. And it seems to be a thing. It seems to be a thing lately. I mean, this is like the third or fourth book I've read in the last months that use footnotes. Your book, Alexandra Rowland's book, Jen Lyon's book. It's like suddenly footnotes are a thing again. Like, okay, I'm back in the days of Jack Vance. Do you ever read Jack Vance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, footnotes in fiction to me are like begin and end with Jonathan Strange, which is like foundational to my understanding of modern fantasy. Um, but also like I came by it honest. All right. I have my master's in history. I had the Chicago style footnote everything. Literally everything I write starts out footnoted and I have to take them out. So, you know, it's not entirely a gimmick. Well, I'm glad you left them in for us because they were very informative. <laughs> That kind that kind of goes into our next question. So, I mean, you've kind of halfway answered this, but we might as well go all the full way. So, this book does have a strong literary bent. The book within the book, commenting on the action. There are letters in the book and footnotes. How did you intend to use these forms to tell January's story? Why did you want to use these forms? And what books you already mentioned, Jonathan Strange and Miss Norrell, inspired you to use these devices to tell your story in this way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's having a master's in history is going to make you have a certain respect for um, almost like finding stories through found footage. Like that's what you're doing in archives and that's what you're doing with good historical research is you're cobbling together narratives from things that you find. And so the idea of a book within a book definitely kind of appealed to me on an academic level and the footnotes, of course. Um, And then it's also just sort of like, I have a huge weakness for books that are about books like Shadow of the Wind, uh, Carlos Zafon. It's amazing. It's so much about the experience of reading and like what goes into making a book. Um, And it's also just like, and I'm sure you guys know this about like have the same experience. It's how I experience my own life. Like I'm a reader. I often find myself narrating things in my head or comparing real life experiences to the way that they happen to my books, which is like, you know, my first kiss was pretty disappointing. Um, <laughs> Isn't it so, always? Like, it is, it is. But especially if you've got a lot of YA novels rattling around your head, you're like, man. Man, it could have been that. <laughs> there was no starlight in hurricanes at all. <laughs> yeah, so the idea of having a narrator who's like super conscious of literary forms and is kind of bookish herself and like is always commenting on what's happening to her in light of like, how plots work, that that is actually how my life is. And your answer actually reminded me that like my first love in books was The Neverending Story, which is exactly. literally the most meta book within a book within a book within a book that you could possibly read. So kudos. Love it. Did you have the, was it like a German version that had the print in different yes. colors? Yes, and I yeah. still have it. I got it in 1985. When I was seven years old, and I mean, I loved books before then, but that one just was eye-opening yeah. to me. And yes, it has the red and the green print, and every 
chapter opens with beautiful artwork and it's mm. the greatest thing that I will ever own and it is precious <laughs> to me. It is literally falling apart, but that's okay. <laughs> um so this book has obviously uh, a couple of different narrators and the point of view shifts depending on who is narrating it. So what were your goals in using first person for January and third person for your other narrator who I am not going to spoil? I, I did, sorry. Yes, Paul <laughs> tried to spoil this. And I was like, no, we can't spoil it. That is very important. And it was so wonderful to find out. <laughs> I You guys got to watch me because I'm a person who doesn't actually, like, in my heart, care about spoilers. Like, <laughs> I want to be a person who has good manners and I don't want to spoil things for other people. But, like, my actual honest truth is that you could tell me the entire plot of a movie, including who dies. And I'd be like, great, let's go see it. That changed nothing for me. Oh, but it's so nice. The reveal of who the narrator is of this book is just so satisfying. And I'm, I'm kind of with you. I will totally watch movies even if I get spoiled. But this one unfurled just so perfectly. So tell us a little bit about those two narrators. Yeah. Um. So one of the reasons... I did it is just because I wanted you to know whether you were in the book or the book within the book. So I wanted you to have like an at a glance way to be like, oh, we're in first person. We must be with January because I frequently kind of like forget where I am in a book as I'm reading and I have to like refamiliarize with um, myself. Um, And then the other reason is just that like I needed one of the narrators to have the ability to sum up large chunks of action and to have a more like distant narratory feel to be able to be like, you know, during this span of years, she did X, Y, and Z and not have to have that be like an awkward skipped place. Does that make sense? That actually completely makes sense. It's yes. like being able to info dump. Yes, which there is a lot of. And not getting called out for it. Nice. Like, I am terrible at world building, it turns out. No. And also sometimes a frustrated reader because I feel like an admirable thing that some writers are able to do is give you the entire world through the tiny, like, lived experience details and you never notice it being fed to you, right? Like, that's kind of the ideal. And it's amazing when they pull it off. But, like, Sometimes, if you don't pull it off, I'm left being annoyed for three quarters of the book, being like, can you just tell me the thing? Like, at some point, can you just explain how the religious system works or the government rather than just, like, making offhanded comments to all these different things forever and hoping I pick it up? Because I'm not smart enough. I somehow don't believe that. (laughs) I certainly don't believe it. Anyway, in conclusion, in my book, I often just am like, here's the world. It looks like this. Here are the rules. Moving on. It worked really, really well for this story. (laughs) And I would like to completely disagree. Alex is a fantastic world builder. (laughs) I cheated. She lied. I cheated. (laughs) But it, it really gives you a lot of information. So that I loved. My question is more... More on an even more fundamental level. The plotting of this book brings us back to the start of the novel and gives us a vision of the events that we saw from a completely new perspective in a new way. So how did what techniques did you use in the writing editing process to get the plotting down? Because you have a lot of moving gears to try to bring that all back around and make that all make sense. So how what was what were your techniques and skills to 
to uh, get all that plotting down properly. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I have a lot of fancy techniques. Uh, like, I haven't had a writing class. Like, I was doing an interview, and they were like, so do you, what do you think of the uh, save the cat plotting method? And I was like, the what now? So I don't have a lot of, like, <laughs> background in that stuff. So basically what I did was really intensively outline everything. And that outline changed a lot, but it's like each time I made it, I kind of discovered a change as I was writing, I would update the entire outline and change it so it was all consistent. And it was really slow. I'm a really slow writer. Um, the other thing about plotting that I would say is just that like the only things that I knew for sure kind of the whole time I was writing was where it started and where it ended. And those things were the only things that didn't change almost. Like I knew it started with a girl in a field finding a door and I knew it ended with that same door in that same field. You just gave me chills because I loved that door. <laughs> yeah. I was really jealous of that door. <laughs> I mean, that was my field. Like, that was my house in my backyard growing up in Western Kentucky. And, like, that is a very specific field. And there was never a damn door in it. And that just sucks. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> now you just need to go back and just build a door in the middle of a field. And then life, <laughs> life will have come full circle. And... <laughs> It should be beautiful. So one of the things that I noticed, um, because obviously we talk a lot about diversity in science fiction and fantasy on this show, and one of the things that you did as a white writer was choose to portray characters of color in the book, which I think you did beautifully, but obviously I'm a white, writer, white reader, so what do I know? But one of the things that you did was you took them out of their own spaces and then place them in the middle of this incredibly racist, highly colonial world of the early 20th century. So how did you make sure to remain respectful of both the historical context of the setting of the 10,000 Doors of January and also Black Americans? And why do you think race was such an important component for January's story and these characters? This is a really great question, but it's also a big question. So I'm so sorry if I monologue here for a minute. No, please do. <laughs> um, so the first thing I want to do is back up a little bit because this is a podcast and people can't see me. And I just want to like super confirm I'm real white. This is not own voices at all. If you're a reader who's looking to support and engage with authors of color in particular, which I get, um, skip my book, No Hard Feelings. We live in like the golden age of sci-fi and fantasy right now. So there's like River Solomon and Cass Ka and Tasha Suri and Evan Winter and um, P. Jelly Clark. And like, there's a lot of places to go other than me. Have a great time. So where am I going to start here? Um, first of all, real quick, in terms of taking people out of their kind of own spaces and placing them in an incredibly racist and colonialized space in the early 20th century... That's the early 20th century. Like, if you're in the Western world, there is no, like, safe haven. So I have exaggerated it and really found, like, a place of isolation and sort of exoticization and stuff like that. And, and I'm not trying to say that, like, everyone's experience was the one that January has. But, like, there's no magical safe place. And the second, I'm going to answer your, like, last question first, which is that I couldn't figure out a way to tell this story um, without kind of wading headfirst into race. Like, I wanted to take a portal fantasy and turn it inside out and talk about power and privilege and escape and who gets to escape and who gets to have adventures. And there's just no way to talk about power and privilege in Western history, history without, like, going head on with race. 
Um, and I want to be clear that, like, I didn't think that the, sto- the story I wanted to tell wasn't like the actual experiences of people of color in the early 1900s in America. That wasn't the story that I was like, felt like I heard the voice of God and was like, you know whose story I need to tell right now. But I did find that like, in order to fully explain and understand that era, it couldn't be a narrator of privilege. Um, And those are like some of the same questions that my master's in history focused on. So the construction of colonial power and race in children's literature. Um, And after I got my master's, I taught African and African-American history for a couple of years. And I felt like I had a pretty solid theoretical grounding going in, but I didn't have those practical day-to-day details, like what their lives were like. Um, So a lot of my research was actually like historical memoirs from women of color in that era. Particularly, I was looking for people who were experiencing that same isolation and exoticization. Um, So things like upper-class Indian women who were schooled in London, or the descendants of enslaved Africans in the Caribbean who later wrote memoirs. Black Americans who were educated even pre-Civil War. Uh, And what was helpful there is that I actually graduated from Berea College, which is the first interracial college in the American South. And which has amazing archives, um, including like letters and stuff from students who were getting college education in the antebellum South. So I did all that and it still didn't give me like the heart of the experience, you know. So like for that, I had to rely on friends and early readers and my brilliant editor for kind of the insights into what it's actually like to be a person of color in white spaces. And in like (laughs) wrapping all that up, I just want to say, like, if you're a white writer listening to this, to this. And you think that you can like totally write a character outside of your experience. No problem. I thought that too. And like, I was wrong. I went swaggering in. It took so much more research than I thought it did. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's that's pretty <laughs> incredible, though, that you actually, A, both have, you know, at least the scholarly background and then went even further than you had already gone and obviously talked to people of color to get a a better grounding of what it might have been like. So, and part of my question though was and you mentioned it, but I think I maybe I didn't frame it correctly. What I meant about by taking them out of their own spaces is that you have characters here that and I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but are literally taken out of their own spaces. <laughs> in which there is nothing of those experiences. In one case, they are in a space with the colonial experience and then are put into a safe space and then are forced <laughs> back out of it. Um, and then in another case, they're just forced back, forced out of it completely. And like... So how, why was that one of the points of view that you wanted to, to kind of explore in this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I think it has to do with like, okay, so if I thought of a world where there's like portals all over the place to other worlds, I think the way that we have tended to think about that adventure story is one where like the bold, mostly white adventurers get to go through the doors and have fun. But I think the way it would actually work in our real world is the people who would actually make most use of doors to other worlds are the people who need them most in our actual world. So the people who are the most marginalized and experiencing the kind of the worst effects of things like Western imperial power and the rise of capitalism. Um, So I wanted to, I don't know, follow those people and see where they would go. 
That's awesome. And it was really nice to have it juxtaposed with a character who has been born and raised, obviously, in the environment. Within it and without it in some ways as well. Because January, to a large extent, for her childhood, is not aware completely of all of the effects that colonialism and racism are having on her life. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody is. Like... You know, it's a fish unaware of water situation, right? Like, how many of us have had the experience of growing up being like, this is a pretty okay world. And then at a certain point, you're like, actually, not so much. Oh, whoops. Yeah. (laughs) That was a certain recent election that did that to me. Yes. (laughs) But not to get political. I think this uh, conversation actually leads us perfectly into Paul's next question. Yes, uh, something a little lighter, but we, the book does have a strong theme of escape, of finding what you want, adventure, love, security, the the perils and the and the sometimes lack of security that you, you can have, like that like that world that they find that doesn't last, which I thought was a really neat touch. But but in general, this is a book that gives up things slowly and carefully. This is not a jump jump into full and hit ninety miles an hour. This is a book that takes a while to pace it all out. So I was wondering if you could talk about the pacing and the structure of the novel and how you how you decided to approach the novel in that way rather than slam band action, basically doling things out in a very patient and measured and careful manner. This is a really nice way of telling listeners, look, folks, it's really slow. It I'm is sorry. not. <laughs> <laughs> It's read, read your expectations. This is not a novel about January jumping out of a jump ship with a 50 millimeter calibrated gun and <laughs> shooting things on page one. That's just not how this goes. And that's okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I guess what I would say about the pacing is expectations matter. And that's one reason I'm kind of trying to like quietly raise my hand in the back and be like, it's actually not YA. It's not young adult. Just because I love YA so much, and I think this is like, you know, crossover, the main character is 17 for most of it. Um, But it doesn't have that YA feeling, like that compulsive pacing and that like, boom, here's our character, here's the stakes, here's the romantic interest, here's the villain, like, here we go. Um, it's, It's a little, like, think more Secret Garden. If you're in that realm of YA. Yes. <laughs> I was just thinking it's kind of like a cozy mystery in that sense. Yeah. The stakes are like pretty small. Like there's suggestions of larger stakes, but like the main character's actual interests, it's like within a family. And then also I, I chose, like I only realized this after I was like almost done writing it, but I probably chose to do a book within a book because I am a giant coward and I was scared of going from short fiction to an entire novel. So I was like, aha, I'll just write two smaller novels and smash them together. Tricky. I love how much you're admitting to cheating here. (laughs) It's so awesome. (laughs) Because folks, there is no cheating in writing, by the way. Do what you want, because you can create some amazing books with it, as evidenced by the 10,000 Joys of January. I'm just saying. (laughs) So speaking of some of the the themes that you put in this, um, as Paul just mentioned, one of those is escape. And your Hugo winning short story, which is Guide to Escape, a practical companion of portal fantasies, I love saying that, has (laughs) that very theme. So what can you tell us about the theme of escape and maybe also how it relates to the article that you literally just had published today in Electric Lit 
Um, seven books about magic tours for the people Narnia left behind. Yeah, so, I mean, if you are a master's student in history and you're like, I'm going to look at British children's literature and I want to look at themes of empire and race, oh, you're going to run into some things, first of all. Like, I've seen some shit. So many things. <laughs> and a lot of the books, I just want to be clear, like, the books that are January is referenced as reading, most of those are real and they're pretty horrifying stuff. Um, but anyway, so one of the kinds of books that I ran into was Portal Fantasies, very much like Narnia, which kind of like burst my childhood bubble where I realized in grad school that a lot of the stories they were telling weren't just these like, ah, charming English children going on an adventure with talking beavers. Instead, it was like, oh, four white foreign children go into a different world that conveniently only has talking animals like in the place of natives and they're just like desperately waiting for their rightful rulers to arrive and, and kind of restore order and that is such a specifically colonial narrative um and yes. interestingly one that he wrote that c.s lewis wrote like during the a time in the actual world when britain's colonies colonies were increasingly difficult to rule right like He's writing this during the era of the early Indian independence movement. Um, so it's kind of impossible to see it as anything but like a fun colonial fantasy of what he wishes it were like in this simplified world. So anyway, that is kind of like a lot of the places that my analysis took me and it was depressing for a while. But then I did. That's kind of the earliest time that I started thinking about like, what would it look like if you had a portal fantasy that wasn't shitty? Like <laughs> one that wasn't about conquest and right to rule and subjugating local populations and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess escape and portal fantasies have been a theme of mine for a while. And there's, I'm like, I don't want to claim that I'm like the person who's reinventing the portal fantasy because obviously a zillion people have done this before. Um, just recently, there's like Sean and McGuire's Wayward Children series, Laura Weymouth has Light Between the Worlds which is very much like a Narnia take, but done dark. Exit West by Mohsin Hamid is like the ultimate anti-colonial portal fantasy because it's like worlds within our own doors that refugees from this unnamed developing nation are using to like pour into the West. It's really brilliant. I'm excited about that one. When I saw it on your yeah. list, I was like, oh my God, must have. Um, it's so funny to me that you're talking about this because we literally, uh, Sean Duke and I just a couple months ago talked about the movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which <laughs> was based on a book that was uh, a little bit questionable, which <laughs> Sean then went on to talk about cannibalism uh, within the original story uh, because it's this major colonial fantasy. And the movie was basically this, you know, raw, raw empire. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, you don't really notice as a child. You know, it's just one of those things. And then you watch the Portobello Road scene and you're like, whoa, <laughs> how did I miss that? Yeah. And yeah, it's still a brilliant movie, but like going in without realizing that sort of colonial context definitely changes things. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's like... I read Lord of the Flies. I feel like everybody read Lord of the Flies in elementary school and got scarred by it. 
Yes. Poor Peggy. But I didn't understand when I first read it. I didn't know this until grad school. That he's like directly responding to an earlier book that was like a total colonial fantasy called The Pearl Island. Have you guys ever heard of that by Ballantyne? No. Yeah. The Pearl Island. It's like, uh, I want to say like 1870s, maybe 1860s. It's pretty early in the like boys adventure books. And it's a boys adventure book about these like three young British boys who get stranded on an island. And instead of devolving into madness and despair and homicide, it's about like how they bring their civilization with them and they like bring order to the island and they build a perfect little model English town and they're perfectly fine. Like everything is great. Ah, Swiss Family Robinson. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like there, there's no, I don't even think they need rescue. They like build a raft out of logs and they're fine. So it's interesting to think about that book being written at like the first like huge surge of the British Empire and then Lord of the Flies being written at the end of it as it's all falling apart and decolonization has really taken hold as this like answer that is very much like, let me tell you what would have actually happened if a bunch of British kids were stranded <laughs> on an island. They would be eating each other in a week. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> oh, that makes me love that book even more. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Alex has mostly answered this question already, but we'll go. I'll go for it anyway. I bet there's more. There's probably more. But I wanted, I, I basically wanted to pick Alex's reading list up. Portal fantasies have flowed in and out of fashion. I've been reading for a long time. I've seen them come, see them recede, come, they seem to be having a resurgence again lately. There's your book. You mentioned Starting McGuire. There's Foz Meadows. There's a whole bunch of portal fantasies lately. Fran Wilde's recent Riverland, actually, just. Oh, I haven't mind. read that yet. Oh, yeah. That is a hard book to read. Just a warning. I know I'm not ready. Yeah, I'm weak. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Paul. Go ahead. I just had to interject. <laughs> no, that no, that that that's fine. So, where do you see your book in that tradition, Alex? And what are your some some more of your fav- favorite portal fantasies? Ooh, see now you're now you're pushing my how many I can lift up, lift off the top of my head. Um, yeah. So, in terms of fitting into a tradition, I want to be clear that like. Maybe I'm part of a tradition of sub- of subverting the tradition. Like lots of people have done this before, right? So The Wayward Children, The Light Between the Worlds, Exit West. I'm sure Riverland. I haven't read it yet. Uh, and in terms of what my favorite ones are, like I do have a weakness for the classics. I'm not going to lie. Peter Pan gets me every time. And I technically count that as a portal fantasy. It's not a door, but the whole like flying second start of the right thing. That counts. I really love Coraline. Like, it's such a specific answer to the Disneyfied Alice in Wonderland that I watched as a kid. Like, Coraline is like this dark alternate game and vision that I just was like addicted to when I first read it. Um, I love Valenti's Fairyland series very, very, very much. It's another book that has just such a whimsical but also like present narrator in a way that i find so charming Mm, yes all right so i i think jen you have the last question it's uh eight words long so go ahead it only is eight words long but it is a gigantic question and i need the answer to it so do we get a book to pretty please (laughs) uh so there's no sequel planned if that's what you mean by book two i have written another book Ooh. Which, with 
luck and fortune and the patience of my husband who has to watch the kids will eventually be published. I just got my edit letter back on it and I'm like, I'm no longer in the lying on the floor moaning phase, (laughs) but I'm not like fully back in the, I'm not fully recovered, you know, like I'm going to get there. Second books, man. Does it have footnotes? It may or may not have chapter epigraphs, which I refer to as footnotes on top. So (laughs) those are cool too. That's amazing. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So actual, actual last question that I've recently added to my repertoire because I think I get some fascinating answers out of it. Um, And you've kind of mentioned it previously in this interview, but what is the one thing that you would like readers to know about the 10,000 Doors of January? Ooh, yeah. I mean, the obvious one that springs to mind is that it's not YA and you shouldn't expect it to be that. And I'm so sorry that marketing is confusing. Um, But also, I guess, I guess I would like them to know that if you pick it up or look at the free chapter online and you read the first few pages and you're like, eh, I don't know, this isn't for me. You're probably right. Like it is what it says it's going to be. If you're hooked from the beginning, it continues in the vein in which it begins. It's kind of slow. It's kind of wordy. It's very much like thinking about stories and doors and escape and how they all fit together. And language in a beautiful way. Like just the very act of writing. This is a love letter to writing. To, to writing, to reading, to, yeah. to, to literary tradition. Yeah. And so if all that makes you kind of roll your eyes, then like it's probably not for you. <laughs> it's a very like heartfelt kind of a thing like oh you know when the season finale of game of thrones aired uh spoiler alert folks and Tyrion does the thing where he's like it's stories that bring people together (laughs) and like that was objectively a stupid moment because nothing in game of thrones had like prepared us for that being the lesson of game of thrones (laughs) like i'm pretty sure the lesson of game of thrones is you either win or you die but anyway that still got me a little bit. That's how much of a sucker I am for this like significance of storytelling and language in people's lives. So just know going in that I'm a huge cheese ball. In the best possible way. Which is why I <laughs> cried. So again, thank you. But no, thank you. Um, no, I'm obviously totally joking because here I am <laughs> gushing about the book. So that. Uh, again, wasn't actually the last question, because before we close this out, where can people find you and your work? Oh, so I spend a lot of time, like more time arguably than I should on Twitter at Alex E. Harrow. Um, I am recently on Instagram at alex.e.harrow. Uh, and I have a newsletter. It's writtenworld.substack.com. I'm joining the cool kids over in Substack. And Basically, like once a month, I'm going to talk about what I'm reading and what kinds of writing lessons I'm pulling out of it. Because I just like even Twitter isn't enough time for me to talk about books and how much I care about them. I mean, that's why we have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's why we have a podcast. <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Alex. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. 
And listeners, if you'd like to drop us a line about our interview here with Alex or about anything else, you can just throw through email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com or on Twitter at skiffyandfanty. Don't forget we have awesome book reviews, including mine, at skiffyandfanty.com and booktube videos at youtube.com slash slippyandfanty. If you don't want to miss anything we do in all the places we do things, and that's a lot, sign up for our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. Finally, if you like what we do and want to show us some remuneration, please support us at patreon.com slash And thanks again for listening to our interview with Alex E. Harrow. Make sure you go check out her beautiful debut novel, The 10,000 Doors of January. See you next time. Stay frosty, listeners. Stay frosty. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.